Please be seated. We are in a study of Isaiah chapter 42. If you'd like to turn there with me, if you have a Bible, we'll be reading together starting in verse 1 and uh, down to verse 7. We have uh, already considered various aspects of this passage, this servant, the meaning of the bruised reed and the smoking flax, the failing candle, and uh, we go on a little further today to consider this victory of justice that he has here also prophesied for us. Here now from Isaiah chapter 42, these words, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastland shall wait for his law. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will hold your hand, and I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the prison to those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that your glory would again be seen from this very passage as we behold your servant, the one in whom your soul delights. May we likewise delight in him also. And May we put our hope in him all the more. If there's none who have not put their hope in him yet, we pray that today would be the great day of their hope, of your victory in them. But we all desire, Father, to go from victory to victory, to have more hope, more expectation from our Lord Jesus. And so it is we come to this passage that you would teach us of him. We pray it in his name. Amen. Justice is one of the most important words in the Bible and, of course, one of the most important concepts in any civilization and society. But what is justice? Um, Perhaps we thought we knew, but we have to wonder these days as we daily hear new terms like uh, reproductive justice, distributive justice, housing justice, food justice and so forth. You keep using that word, said Indigo Montoya. I do not think it means what you think it means. Uh, Social justice is often discussed. Originally a Roman Catholic term, and Rome, for their part, still clearly defines it, the equal dignity of human persons, which requires the effort to reduce excessive social and economic inequalities. It gives urgency to the elimination of sinful inequalities says the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And all the faithful, according to the Code of Canon Law, are obliged to, perf- to promote social justice. That's their term. They coined it. 
But if you look today at uh, the Communist Party USA's website, I hope you don't, but it is cpusa.org, you'll find over 400 web pages referencing social justice. Because, of course, since the 1970s, the term has become a more secular concept. Why, even that source of all knowledge, Wikipedia, confesses that it's been adopted by those on the left of the political spectrum and is commonly associated with the political forms of Marxist slash communism. Well, sometimes social justice means care for the poor and the common good, which we are passionately for. Sometimes it means Marxist communism, which we are passionately against. The fact that the same term can be embraced so eagerly by conservative Roman Catholics and militant pro-choice atheists to talk about the same issues indicates the danger of a word meaning something other than what we intended. It's no good to have the same vocabulary if we're using different dictionaries. I do not think it means what you think it means. We read in the Bible of that dark time in the life of God's people, the time of the judges. And do you remember what it says there again and again? It, it says that in that day, everyone did what was wrong in his own eyes. Mm -mm. What does it say? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There is this confusion about what justice is, that wickedness can be promoted as justice. Now, the author we've been considering this summer so far, Richard Sibbs, in his book, The Bruise Read, reminds us that truth is truth, and error is error, and whatever is unlawful is unlawful, whether men think so or not. God has put an eternal difference between light and darkness, good and evil, and therefore no man's judgment is the measure of things further than it agrees with truth stamped on them by God's word. You know why he wrote that? Because they had the same problem back then that we have today. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Satan, he writes, is a prince of darkness and rules in the darkness of the understanding. And if we are going to have justice on the earth, it must, there come for, must therefore come with some light from heaven. And that is what the passage is going to teach us today. We're going to consider God's means of bringing true justice to the earth, uh, a uh, project that uh, comes through each individual so enlightened and changed by his grace. We've been studying the first of Isaiah's four so-called servant songs, which introduce us to the servant of the Lord, this one who's anointed with God's spirit to bring God's justice and salvation to the nations of the earth. Matthew quotes this passage at length, uh, the 12th chapter of his gospel, to show how these prophecies are fulfilled in our Lord Jesus. He has come to bring justice unto victory, as Matthew translated it. But if Jesus has come, you'll want to know, where is that justice? I once read a story that goes like this. Um, a Christian told the rabbi in New York City that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, the rabbi went to his window, looked out at the city, 
and returned, shaking his head. No, he says, when the Messiah comes, there will be justice. This is a popular belief then as now that the Messiah is going to come and bring justice like that, with military force, indeed. But Matthew quotes this passage to demonstrate that the Messiah had come to do exactly what God had declared in the prophets, that he would be both tender and triumphant to the nations, both gentle with weak and victorious in the earth. But we do understand this dilemma that the Jews felt and they feel today. If, if the Savior has come, where is this promised justice? Well, let's look at the passage. Verse 1 Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect or chosen one, in whom my soul delights. God is directing our attention to his beloved, and with poetry paints a beautiful portrait of this servant who is the hope of all the earth. I have put my spirit upon him, a reference to the Messiah, as he has been anointed with the spirit without measure to fulfill his duties. And he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. That is to say, not to Israel merely, but to the nations of the earth. And we are then told just how gently this victory comes, as we have considered not crying out or raising his voice or causing his voice to be heard in the street, not breaking a bruised reed or quenching a smoking wick until he brings forth justice for truth. He will not fail or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Now, brief word of translation. If you're reading the old uh, version, the word judgment is used rather than justice throughout, and judgment is the meaning of the word. No quibble there. But in our day, I will say that judgment is often confused with condemnation. And so if you're reading the King James, uh, that's not the meaning. The idea is of bringing just judgment uh, to, to the world, hence justice. You can see that from verse 4, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. He's not coming to bring condemnation. He's coming to bring justice, uh, to bring a just law. Uh, when Matthew quotes this, he translates the meaning, he will send forth justice to victory. But the question uh, now for us is, how does this work? And where is it now? So let me make two observations from the passage and then we'll make some application to ourselves. Uh, first, Christ gives us light. Christ gives us light. Here is the world and all of its nations lying under darkness. Uh, the kingdom of darkness being upheld by ignorance and error. But we are told in the passage that when Christ comes, he's come to be a light to the Gentiles, verse 6, and to open blind eyes, verse 7. Now, the destiny of Christ's kingdom in the earth is going to be great, but it will advance one person at a time as he comes to open blind eyes and enlighten Gentiles. If there's going to be a change in the world, it must come through or to people and in particular here, to people who abide in darkness or blindness. Or to change the picture, you know how COVID effect, affected the taste of many people so that things just don't taste as they should? St still, for some, some people here, they, they just don't taste like they should. 
So it is with the sickness of sin. Um, we, we don't have the taste for righteousness and justice as we should. It just doesn't appeal to people, perhaps, like it ought. On the other hand, um, we find this confusion so that uh, abortion on demand is called reproductive justice. Marxism is called economic justice. Getting fired because you won't sign a clearly false diversity statement is called LGBT justice, and so on. You get my meaning. Um, There will be no true justice in the earth until Christ gives sight to the blind, until the light of God is going to shine down on the minds of men. So, Sibs writes, the prince of darkness rules in the darkness of the understanding, and therefore he must first be cast out of the understanding by the victory of truth. Hence, it is promised that Christ, by his Spirit, will convince the world of righteousness and judgment. Um, to use another illustration, some, some years ago, a uh, few of you still here, we were uh, meeting over at the university. We used to do that every week, and we were studying some apologetics about uh, what is good, what is justice, what is right, um, and can atheism account for those things? So after we'd studied it, uh, I invited the leader of the campus Free Thinkers Group, which was also the leader of the polyamory group on campus, by the way. Uh, polyamory, um, you know what polygamy is, having more than one wife. Uh, polyamory says, well, why, why even bother to get married? Uh, yeah, so the guy that was the leader of the Free Thinkers and the another group called the Polyamory Group, and uh, uh, one of his uh, friends from the Freethinkers Group, a group that is committed to reason over religion, uh, who's a very nice fellow, agreed to come, and we had a nice conversation where we asked some of these questions. Uh, so, obviously, you're in the Freethinkers Group. You're, you're an atheist, yes, yes. Well, um, do, do you believe that there is such a thing as justice, as right, uh, as something that is good? Uh, he says, well, of course, you don't have to be religious to, to believe in justice. You can do it all by, by reason. I said, well, okay, well, what is the reason you tell me? I mean, you know, you, you have these ideas in your brain. There's a chemical reaction going on here. Maybe that's even determined in some way by your DNA. I don't know. But why should a bag of chemicals uh, obey its chemistry? Why should DNA be something that everybody in the world has to obey? In other words, there, is, there, is there really a transcendent system of justice, or is there just a bunch of chemical reactions programmed by our DNA? Well, he says, I, I think we can still get there by reason. All right, well, you, give me the reason then why, wh- why we should obey our chemistry, why we should obey our DNA, why, why this fizzing that's going on in your head should be the rule for anybody else. Even if everybody else is fizzing the same way, why should we necessarily obey that biology or chemistry or even psychology? Well, by the end of the hour, he was completely on board by what I was saying. You're right, there is no such thing as justice. There is no such thing as right. There is no such thing as wrong. There's, there's only biology and maybe some preferences that we have as a result of that. And uh, he, he felt very liberated 
by that realization that there was no such thing as right and wrong, good and bad, justice and injustice. So I said, uh, go in peace. <laughs> uh, I, I did not, but here's the point. The problem is dead people don't even know they're dead. People born blind don't even know what light is until, of course, Christ opens the eyes of the blind. And then it is written, Awake, O sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Uh, he thought there was some reason within him, and then he realized, no, not at all. Maybe you've, con- maybe you've n- never considered this about yourself. In fact, maybe you're still in the dark. Maybe you are here, and you maybe are doing what is right in your own eyes. I hope not like that free thinker did, but the problem is essentially the same. That's just an extreme case. You need Christ to open your eyes, or else you will never be able to see your sin and God's holiness, your need and his mercy, your awaiting judgment and Christ's everlasting salvation. Maybe you never even thought there was a problem because dead people don't know that they're dead. And you've got to pray, oh Lord, I think I see a glimmer. I want to see by your light. I want to know the truth that the truth might set me free. For the Bible says that everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved, but you have to have your eyes opened to even know your need. And so Christ comes into the world to be a light to the Gentiles and to open the eyes of the, of the blind. And people will never see, the, the nations of the earth will never see and recognize true justice until, point one, Christ gives us light. Nevertheless, as we also read at the beginning of, uh, beginning of our service, this is not enough for Christ merely to enlighten the mind. He's also got to warm the heart. And the passage reminds us that Christ not only gives us light, but also makes us willing. My second point to you, Christ makes us willing. We're told in verse 1 again, to behold the one in whom God's soul delights, And as we saw last time, given this majestic portrait of our great but gentle Redeemer who doesn't break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax in order that we might, too, delight in him. And this is the means by which his word becomes delightful to us, that he becomes delightful to us, Sibs writes. Christ rules by a spirit of love, from a sense of his love whereby his commandments are easy to us. He leads us by his free spirit, a spirit of liberty. His subjects are volunteers. The constraint that he lays upon his subjects is that of love. He draws us sweetly with the cords of love. Yet remember that he also draws us strongly with a spirit of power. There we go. Christ makes us willing. Christ makes us willing. Okay, you say, I, I get it. He's got to enlighten the mind. He's got to incline us to do his will. But, but, but how is this supposed to help the nations of the earth? How is this supposed to bring justice to the world? Uh, what's being talked about here is not just, you might say, conversion or illumination, but a massive change in the nations of the earth. How does, this, how does one lead to another? Very good question. So we've celebrated the birth of our nation this past week, and 
maybe rightly discouraged at the lack of liberty and justice for all. On the other hand, if you've traveled the world at all, you know that we take a great deal for granted here in this country. Um, where's my uh, Colombian friend to add an amen to that, right? Um, we take a great deal for granted here in America. I've told you before about Vishal Maglawati, uh, that uh, Christian born and raised in India, still living there, the author of the book that made your world, who, who says, you don't, you don't understand what it's like in the nation, other nations of the earth. He describes the corruption of his own country and so many countries of the earth and, and says that, you know, the nations of Christendom were no different before the gospel came to them. In fact, Christendom, again, was as corrupt as any part of the world until it recovered the biblical gospel during the Reformation, he points out. And he documents the, the tremendous change that's come to Western society, especially in the wake of the Reformation and the Great Awakening and the subsequent revivals, uh, to, to illustrate in the early 80s, Vishal went to a conference in England on economic development seeking to learn how he might be able to help his country more. He was involved in a Christian ministry that was not only bringing the gospel, but seeking to bring some practical change to his country in India. On the plane, Vishal sat next to a Sikh businessman who was talking nonstop. He said they could barely get a word in otherwise, uh, edgewise, but he was having trouble comprehending why Vishal was still living in poverty. Why were you serving the poor in India? And he took it upon himself to persuade Vishal to resettle in England. He said, doing business in England is so easy and profitable. Tell me, sir, Vishal asked, why is business so easy in England? Because everybody trusts you there, he says. And he answered without hesitating a moment. Vishal didn't grasp what the man meant until after the conference he went and visited a, a friend named Jan van Barnenfeld in Holland. Uh, Jan invited Vishal to go with him one afternoon. Come on, let's go get some milk. And he led him across the field to a local dairy farm. Uh, Vishal stared with wide eyes as he'd never seen anything like what was going on here. There was a very neat and tidy dairy farm where cows were milked automatically without the need of human labor, and milk was pumped into a large tank. Um, Vishal says, we entered the room, uh, Jan uh, took his bottle, he opened the tap, he filled up his jug, then he pulled over a bowl full of some cash, he threw in a 20 guilder note, he made some change from the bowl, he put the change in his wallet, picked up his jug, and started to leave. Man, Vishal said, if you were an Indian, you would take the milk and the money. Jan just laughed, but in that instant, he, he understood what the Sikh businessman was trying to say. You don't understand. Something is very different about your world. Vishal writes, If this were India, where they'd walk out with the money and the milk, the dairy owner would need to hire a cashier. And who would pay for the cashier? Well, I, the consumer, would, and the price of milk would go up. But if the consumer were corrupt, why should the dairy owner be honest? He would add water to the milk and make more money. I then would be paying more money for adulterated milk. I would complain, the milk is adulterated. The government must appoint inspectors. And they would. And who would pay for the inspectors? I, the taxpayer, would. 
But if the consumer, the producer, and the supplier were corrupt, why should the inspectors for their part be honest? They would expect bribes from the supplier. And if he did not bribe them, the inspectors would delay the supply and ensure the milk curdled before it got to me. And who would pay for the bribe? Well, ultimately, I, the consumer, would pay the additional cost. And by the time I paid for the milk, the cashier, the water, the inspector, and the bribe, I would have little money left, and my children would not get to drink very much milk and be much weaker than the Dutch children. He goes on to say, some years ago, I shared this story at a conference in Indonesia. An Egyptian participant laughed the most, and all eyes turned to him, and he explained, we Egyptians are more clever than the Indians. If no one were watching, we would take the milk, the money, and the cows. <laughs> it's a couple years later that Vishal returned to India, and he heard his uncle complaining that they were getting very highly adulterated milk. The milk was so thin, Vishal said uh, he had found uh, an honest milkman, uh, a Christian, and he was getting pure milk. And his uncle laughed. He wouldn't believe it. For half an hour they talked. Vishal tried to convince his uncle to start buying milk from his milkman, his uncle dismissing him as being totally naive. It's impossible to get pure milk here, he said. Your milkman must be very clever. He must be adding something other than water to the milk, something you haven't yet figured out. In one country town, there's a Protestant legacy of 500 years. Honesty is assumed. Another country town where there's no such legacy, you cannot convince people that there's one single honest man in the town. How do the ordinary people of Holland become so different than the ordinary people of, in, like, of India or Egypt. Vishal documents from history, he says, there's no innate superiority of the Dutch over the Indian. In fact, we used to have it over the Dutch. They used to be worshiping rocks. We had a civilization. But Vishal says, now, if you look at a list of the countries from Transparency International, which ranks the nations by corruption, the least corrupt countries are all the Protestant countries, the places where the cultures were decisively shaped by the Bible, hence the book that made your world, which he says you're about to lose, and you don't know what you're going to lose. The only exception he points out is Singapore, a former British colony city-state with over one-third of the government leaders who are university graduates and Christians or trained in Christian schools, and South Korea, the tiny nation who's been enjoying such a major Christian revival. Otherwise, all the rest of the nations at the long top of the list are historically the Protestant nations. The point is, you want justice? You will never get justice in the world without getting justice into the hearts of the people. And you will never get justice into the hearts of the people without Christ giving you light and Christ making you willing. And we are enjoying a legacy a heritage of that, which we are losing, Vishal warns. You come to my country, he says, you realize this is not something to be taken for granted. No, our Savior makes a life lived for God to be our passion and our desire. This is how he brings change in the earth. Slow, but sure. I remember Dr. Krabendam, who taught some of you here at Covenant College. He was telling the story about how he uh, had to go to a different barber to get his hair cut. 
and he was uh, embarrassed to realize as he was waiting there that there were ungodly magazines laying around, he noticed, and you understand, and so Dr. K thought this would therefore be a very good opportunity to speak to this man about the Lord, especially considering that he had a captive audience for at least 15 minutes. So he told him about Christ and the freeness of his eternal life and salvation that is in him and how we are saved by grace through faith and not of works so that anyone should boast. And the barber seized on him at that point and said, so you're saying that if I become a Christian, I can still read whatever I want? Whatever you want, Dr. K said as he looked around and replied, whatever you want, but your wanter will change, said as only a self-possessed Dutchman could say it. Your wanter, that's it. Sibs again, where Christ as a prophet teaches by his spirit, he likewise as a king subdues the heart. Christ sets up his throne in the very heart and alters its direction, so making his subjects just, together with teaching them to be just. Christ thus changes the world by changing its people, enlightening their minds, warming their hearts. It's tender, and yet it's triumphant. Now, I hear an objection from the weak. And as I've explained to you, he's written this book especially to be of help to weak Christians. Well, if this is so, Christ enlightens the mind and warms the heart so that we desire righteousness and justice. Why me? Why then do I still have so much struggle and sorrow and shame? If Christ is gaining the victory, then why am I so often in defeat? Now, that really is a good question. And a good Puritan style, Sibs has four answers for you. Number one, you need to remember that victory for the Christian comes in the same way that victory came for Christ. He conquered most when he suffered the most. His victory was in his cross. Second, remember in our previous sermons about that bruised reed and the smoking flax, victory is yet in this life still very imperfect, just as it still is imperfect in the world. It is coming by degrees. But um, would a soldier expect the war to end the moment he struck the first blow? Would a runner expect to have the crown as he took the first step onto the racetrack? Those Israelites, they were sure of victory in their journey to Canaan, but they still had to fight it out, didn't they? And God is not training cowards. He's training victors. He's not training wimps. He's training warriors. In fact, God says, I'm not going to get rid of all those Canaanites so easily right away, lest the people forget how to fight. Uh, Later, Psalm 59, slay them not, lest my people forget. God does not want us to quickly forget what cruel enemies Christ has overcome for us, but that we might be kept in fear to come under their power again. So, remember, God has promised that now, in this life, sin will not have dominion over you now. There's a new Lord. 
and it will be completely vanquished in that life to come. You'll be like him and you'll see him as he is. Now we fight, but he says, rest assured, we will fight unto victory. Third, God often works in the opposite way that you would expect. Sib says we, he works by contraries. Um, when he's going to give victory, he allows us to be overcome at first. When he's going to comfort us, he will terrify us at first. When he means to justify us, he will condemn us first. When he means to make us glorious, he will humble us first. You know, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He points out that uh, time and time again, uh, God works by these contrary motions. And you don't realize that even while you are being overcome by one sin, you are being kept from a greater one. In fact, I put it in the bulletin again this week here. A Christian conquers even when he's conquered. When he's conquered by some sins, he gets victory over others more dangerous, such as spiritual pride and security, or we could add self-righteousness or any number of things. I mean, how much better it was for Peter to be left to deny his Lord and gain some humility than to continue in his intolerable self-righteous pride. So just, brothers and sisters, in your daily defeats, you're being reminded how much you daily need the Lord. And that is more important. That is a real, a real victory, Sib says. Fourth and finally, sometimes both in the church and in the hearts of Christians, Christ's work goes backward that it may go forward better. It goes backward that it may go forward winter, uh, better. So that a hard winter makes for sweeter fruits in summer somehow, or that children, they learn to walk through a thousand falls, or that roots, roots are driven deep into the soil by the wind. Um, I've told you before about that interesting experiment called Biosphere 2 down in Arizona, um, a fully enclosed environment so that scientists could simulate what it would be like for people to live on other planets or moons. Um, one, surviving, one, one surprising finding is that the trees they had brought in didn't survive. The, the trees grew quickly with plenty of sun and water and fertilizer, uh, nothing to disturb them, right up. And then they began to bend over. Uh, some of them even fell. This happened to a number of the trees, and so they actually broke protocol, and they allowed some people to go and investigate. And they did some more research, and they found the problem. Although the biosphere contained much of the Earth's environment, there was one very important thing that was missing from the biosphere. Wind. And because trees didn't have wind to batter them, they didn't sway, and the wood didn't get under pressure and stress, and then it didn't flare properly at the bottom, and stress wood, so-called, is essential for having strong trunks and especially important to drive roots deep enough so that they'll be able to grow to a mature height. And so they learned from Biosphere 2 that without this stress, trees won't stand or grow fruit to maturity. And so what's true of trees is true of human beings. This battering, this struggling, does over time build greater strength in us and cause us to send 
our roots down to Christ. We would prefer to grow to maturity without a single failure in a calm, controlled environment. And a hothouse is no doubt perfect for very tender plants, but it's not good for them to stay in the hothouse. No, no, no. You need the battering of wind and weather. And God has appointed your weaknesses, your failings, your ongoing sins to deepen your roots in Him, to strengthen your walk in Him. When we fail, writes Sibs, let us believe that we shall at last overcome. When we have fallen, let us believe we shall rise again. Jacob, after he received a blow which made him lame, yet would not give up his wrestling till he had gained the blessing. Let us never give up, but assure ourselves that God's grace, even in this imperfect state, is stronger than Adam's free will in the state of perfection. We are now in Christ. As he is the author, so he will be the finisher of our faith. That's the triumphant answer. We get discouraged and downcast. We see the lack of progress. And it, it seems sometimes that there's nothing happening. Like there's nothing happening in the world, only bad things. Nothing happening in us as well. Maybe we have a false idealism. Some of us are expecting too much here and now from the Lord. We want to see so much more to happen. And of course, we should expect great things from God, both in us and in the world. Don't get me wrong. But there is this not yet in Christian experience. So that Paul says, we groan inwardly. That's our experience. We have to struggle with the sins, the setbacks, the discouragements, and the disappointments. And that these things, too, must serve our salvation. These are part of the all things that God works together for the good of those who love him. Don't expect everything now, O oh bruised reed, O oh flickering wick. And don't overlook everything now. Hasn't the Lord done so much for you already? Oh, you groan and you weep. But friends, God has done so much in you already. Jesus uh, sent a message to his discouraged servant, John the Baptist, who was upset that more wasn't happening and he was about to die in prison. And Jesus says, John, the blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And therefore, you see, this picture of Christ... without raising his voice, tenderly nurturing, nurturing the bruised reed, not quenching the flickering flame, as he nevertheless brings forth justice to the nations of the earth. This is teaching us the mixture of trial and triumph, the mixture of disappointment and joy, the mixture of sin and holiness, the mixture of discouragements and encouragements, of setbacks and advances, the already and the not yet. In my favorite Martin Luther quote, he says, 
This life is not there for righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this holy word, which truly is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path as we find ourselves stumbling and in need of some nourishment and refreshment upon our way. We pray that you would remember to deal with us as a needy people, for you remember our frame that we are as dust. And we pray that we might have a new appreciation for this part of your word. Where there are hearts that are sore, we pray that you would bind them up. Where people are discouraged and questioning or doubting, O Lord, give them that light of faith, which is being sure of what we do not yet see. Where there are those who are yet outside of your kingdom, without hope and without God in the world, we pray that they would not be offended because of its apparent weakness but that they might see the glory in him who was so despised and rejected of men, but one in whom his soul delighted. We are aching for heaven and tired of the struggle, and yet as you yourself have put us here to serve you and to glorify you in the earth, to be those who take up our cross, cross to follow Christ daily. We pray that even as Christ was nevertheless at length victorious, so we pray that you would give us the victory in him 